Welcome to The Christian Atheist, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. Episode number 97, Paradise Lost, Books 11 and 12, Conclusion. Paradise Retained, The Mind of Christ. We end our investigation of Paradise Lost by John Milton this week. We should note that Milton wrote a much less famous sequel, Paradise Regained. Who knows, we may end up reading and commenting on it in the future. But for now, our task is to end this analysis well. Most of Books 11 and 12 is taken up in a recounting of human history by the Archangel Michael, a fitting epic denouement to the theme of Paradise Lost, tracing the tragic outplay of sin's consequences. Our concern, however, is more limited, as we have traced the interaction of evil and good through the poem to this final exclusion of man from the garden. Whereat, in either hand, the hastening angel caught our lingering parents, and to the eastern gate led them direct, and down the cliff as fast to the subjected plain, then disappeared. They, looking back, all the eastern side beheld of paradise, so late their happy seat. Some natural tears they dropped, but wiped them soon. The world was all before them, where to choose their place of rest, and providence their guide. They, hand in hand, with wandering steps and slow, through Eden took their solitary way. For me, there is little to no sting left to this final expulsion from Eden. The loss is real, to be sure, but Adam and Eve, walking hand in hand with divine providence their guide, seem to me, as prefigured by Satan in Book 4, still imparadised. Thus these two, says Satan, Imparadised in one another's arms, the happier Eden, shall enjoy their fill of bliss on bliss, while I to hell am thrust, where neither joy nor love but fierce desire, among our other torments not the least, still unfulfilled, with pain of longing pines. God's Providence if not his immediate presence, is retained, as well as the marital relation of mutual aid, joy in union and comfort, so long as man maintains his fundamental faith in his creator and sustainer, through self-knowledge recalls his dependence, his finitude and limitations, and seeks always proper relation to his world and his God. In obedience to God, man still finds his happiness, and in opposition to him, his misery. Here at the end, we have what the writer of Ecclesiastes called the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, and, we might add, of angels. The contrast between obedience and disobedience, between two different approaches to life, the choices we make and the consequences we bear is, from beginning to end, 
for all the characters of Paradise Lost, the conclusion of the whole matter. The losses are real. The truly tragic in Paradise Lost is the loss of God's immediate presence to man. In the passage above, this is signaled by the angel taking Adam and Eve by the hand, leading them from the garden, and then disappearing. No more, except in isolated moments, does God meet with man face to face. Adam expresses this loss in Book 11. This most afflicts me, that departing hence, as from his face I shall be hid deprived his blessed countenance. Here I could frequent with worship, place by place, where he vouchsafed presence divine. In yonder nether world, where shall I seek his bright appearances, or footstep trace? Michael responds to Adam's lament, displaying paradise retained. Adam, thou knowest heaven his and all the earth. His omnipresence fills land, sea, and air. Surmise not, then, his presence to these narrow bounds confined of paradise or Eden. Doubt not, but in valley and in plain, God is, as here, and will be found alike present. And of his presence many a sign still following thee, still compassing thee round with goodness and paternal love, his face express, and of his steps the track divine. I am haunted in this regard by the conversation I had with atheist David Smalley earlier this year. At one point I suggested to him that the most powerful argument for atheism was the perennial problem of evil. He immediately said, No. It is the absence of God. My heart ached on that point. As for believers, God is most decidedly not absent. But, as Michael points out to Adam, present everywhere, with the alteration that now we walk by faith and not by sight. Eve, too, expresses the loss of Eden, though from a slightly different perspective from Adam and with a corresponding response from Michael. Oh, unexpected stroke, worse than of death! Must I thus leave thee, paradise? Thus leave thee, native soil, these happy walks and shade? Oh, flowers which I bred up with tender hand from the first opening bud, and gave ye names, who now shall rear ye to the sun? Thee, lastly, nuptial bower, by me adorned with what to sight or smell was sweet. From thee how shall I part, and whither wander down into a lower world? Whom thus the angel interrupted, mild. Lament not, Eve, but patiently resign what justly thou hast lost. Nor set thy heart thus over-fond on that which is not thine. Thy going is not lonely. With thee goes thy husband, whom to follow thou art bound. Where he abides, think there thy native soil. Eve, true to the domestic concerns of her heart, 
laments the loss of that to which she set her hand in Eden, the flowers, her children by extension, the beauty of the garden, and the marital bower she invested with all her creative care and love. Michael's response redirects Eve's affections from the material to the relational, away from an attachment to that which is not thine, to that which, in proper relation, is Adam. She declares to Adam, I never from thy side henceforth to stray, where'er our day's work lies, though now enjoined laborious. The loss is real, but obedience to God's laws, even after the fall, retains for the believer the paradise of obedience, conformity to what God calls the law I gave to nature, which yields man's best life, the goodness of God still accessible to him. As we saw last week, it is this relation, this divine order of which we are a part, the divine hope in the promised Redeemer, which motivates our labor, devotion, and aspiration. As the Son says early in Book 11, till death his doom to better life shall yield him, where with me all my redeemed may dwell in joy and bliss, made one with me as I with thee, Father, am one. It is the future restoration of the divine order or relation that call us in this life to that ideal relation which we are called to mirror at every level. Relation to self and spouse, to family and humanity, to nature and to God. For God, we must never forget, is relation. I cannot resist one parting shot from Book 11 which will serve as transition to Book 12. As Michael relates sin's ongoing influence through history, Adam editorializes, Still I see the tenor of man's woe holds on the same, from woman to begin. This sad editorial on male reasoning reflects the estrangement of the sexes in the fall, and Michael's rebuke places the blame back where it properly belongs, restoring once again the proper relation ordained by God. From man's effeminate slackness it begins, said the angel, who should better hold his place by wisdom and superior gifts received. Men, says Michael, should be men and let the women be women. A timely reminder for our day as well. It is once again the improper relation, the failure to reflect divine order and hierarchy, of the part to other parts, and to the whole that brings so much grief to our world. This point is echoed in the theme of lost liberty in Book 12, where Adam rebukes the builder of the Tower of Babel. O oh, execrable son, so to aspire above his brethren, to himself assuming authority usurped, from God not given. He gave us only over beast, fish, 
foul, dominion absolute. But man over men he made not, Lord, such title to himself reserving, human left from human free. But this usurper, his encroachment proud, stays not on man. To God his tower intends siege and defiance. Wretched man! Milton here compares man's oppression of man to the arrogations of the adversary. Milton was famously opposed to monarchy, favoring a republican government, and the great anti-slavery sentiment that was to rise and triumph through Christ's people in later years finds here the strongest of advocates. Michael takes the opportunity to express what may very well be the most devastating effect of the fall. Justly thou abhorrest that son, who on the quiet state of men such trouble brought, yet know withal, since thy original lapse, true liberty is lost, which always with right reason dwells twinned, and from her hath no individual being. In the fall, that is, humanity lost true liberty. We have emphasized throughout our commentary the slavery of Satan, falsely represented to himself and his fallen brethren as freedom enthralled by evil and tortured by the good they both desire and despise. True freedom, then, is to know the good, and therefore, the classic conclusion indicator, reason in action, to pursue it. Hence God the Father said at the beginning of Book 11 that man came to know both good and evil since his taste of that defended fruit. But let him boast his knowledge of good lost, and evil got. Happier had it sufficed him to have known good by itself, and evil not at all. Knowledge of the good, then, is true freedom, true reason, as it exists in the divine superlative. For knowledge of evil is not true knowledge at all, as the being of evil is not true being, but a parasitic and contradictory death life, a darkening and obscuring of the real and the true. This is why, as I have emphasized since the origins of our podcast, reason properly employed always leads to God, but Quote, reason in man obscured, or not obeyed, immediately inordinate desires and upstart passions catch the government from reason. And the government here is, of course, the government of the individual soul. And to servitude reduce man, till then free. Therefore, since he permits within himself unworthy powers to reign over free reason, God, in judgment just, subjects him from without to violent lords, who oft as undeservedly enthrall his outward freedom. In this way we must understand the paradox, the seeming contradiction from the atheist view of God as the restrictor of human freedom. Adam, 
understanding the law that would be given to the chosen people, the seed of Abraham, says this, This yet I apprehend not. Why to those among whom God will deign to dwell on earth so many and so various laws are given? So many laws argue so many sins among them. How can God with such reside? The reason this must be so puzzling to Adam is found in Eve's reaction to Satan upon first viewing the forbidden fruit when he tempts her in Book 9. Of this tree we may not taste nor touch. God so commanded, and left that command sole daughter of his voice. The rest, we live law to ourselves. Our reason is our law. Uncorrupted reason needs no law, as it is the law, the very mind of God in man. Thus, as Milton said above, human freedom is one with right reason. Obedience to God, then, is not drudgery, but the very essence of what we have been created to be, the greatest joy we can experience. The gate is open to paradise. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The fall has obscured our reason, which is why we must now choose to be not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ. The mind of Christ is paradise for man. And Milton's great poem ends with the temporal mirror of eternal bliss in unity with Christ, the bond of one flesh. They, hand in hand, with wandering steps and slow, through Eden, took their solitary way. I am a Christian, with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason. Respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.